just just adding to Dr. Russell's point, they, they certainly there are people who had with mental handicap or retardation. They were looked very carefully by the, the people in the shrine and the microcephalics, which was absolutely epidemic in Monastery. Mm -hmm. People with very small skulls. They were almost considered innocent by people, loved by people, mm -hmm. never derided and never abused. So they were considered innocent and they went about freely like children and everybody loved them. Thank you. Um, before we um, open up for a bigger discussion, um, we'll briefly talk about current research um, Pauline Kutcher is doing. Um, and uh, just to give a brief background um, to Pauline, she, she is now based in Damascus, even though she, she's doing her PhD at Warwick. And uh, Nice slash Paris, um, and she's she's working on, on melancholy um, and the social context of melancholy. Uh, more precisely, melancholy in Greco-Arabic writings. Um, and today she she will um, have a very brief look. Um, yeah, I don't know if you could limit it as a 10th century and uh, melancholy. So please. Yeah. Well, um, uh, this is a handout. I'm sorry because I I forgot to put it into a PDF before printing it. So for those of you used to reading manuscripts, it, it, it will be okay, but for the others, I, I'm not sure. So <laughs> you'll see. So, um, yeah, melancholy, translated in Arabic as malinkhulia, or Sawdawi, is an illness which deeply interested Arab physicians in the aftermath of the Greeks. So I will here divide this paper in two parts. First, I will very briefly um, give a, a general perspective on melancholy in uh, Arabo-Islamic text, and then I will focus on melancholy in uh, society. So in medical treatises, melancholy is characterized as an illness of the brain with no fever. Ishaq Ibn Imran, in his ninth century treatise on melancholy, describes it as an illness that affects the body, but whose symptoms and harmful effects affect the soul. As indicated by the word malinchulia, this disease is caused by, by black bile. Malinchulia, of course, is a transliteration of melanakole in Greek, uh, which connotes the rising of black bile to the brain, at which point it obstructs, obstructs, sorry for my English, obstructs the brain's ventricles. Physicians inherit from the Greeks three types of melancholy, melancholy located in the whole body, melancholy located primarily in the head and hypochondriac melancholy uh, primarily located in the stomach. Though sadness and anxiety are the two main symptoms that indicate the onset of the disease, numerous other symptoms may also be present depending on the type of melancholy from which one suffers. And the psychological symptoms include fury, hallucinations, and all other signs of mental trouble. And uh, the concept of melancholy underwent uh, a deep evolution in, in the Islamic period from a medical and also from a social uh, standpoint. Uh, from a medical standpoint, both the clinical and the theoretical aspects um, were enriched. Um, and uh, melancholy transcended the medical realm and impacted on the, all the 
very uh, different uh, Muslim societies, um, as can be shown from uh, the story, the, the study of uh, literature, historical chronicles, and biographical dictionary, as well as uh, jurisprudence. Um, so, um, to put it shortly, uh, melancholy um, in Arabo-Islamic medicine raises uh, the following topics. Uh, the evolution of the conception of both black bile and melancholy, the relationship between melancholy and madness, as uh, Junoun, uh, through the resemblance between melancholy and other illnesses affecting the mind, and the evolution in the treatment of the melancholic through the continued use of the uh, materia medica, the new environment for the practice of medicine provided by the Islamic hospital, and even surgical processes, uh, there is a surgical process is presented by Az-Zahrawi, uh, but we don't know if it was actually uh, actually applied, but it's in his book, it's a cautery. Um, so, so, um, for, so, the main evolution of melancholy in Arab Islamic medicine, I think, is the stress put on melancholy as a mental disease, whereas the Greek theory of melancholy was mostly based on the hypochondriac type of melancholy, even if the two other types appeared as early as in Rufus's writings. This evolution was made possible by two main factors. First, the development of the localization of the faculties of the hegemonic part of the soul in the brain, that is imagination, memory, and thinking, as well as the localization of the diseases affecting those faculties in Ibn Sina and uh, uh, Ibn Rushd's writings. And second, the psychological causes of melancholy came more and more under scrutiny, while physicians like Ishaq Ibn Imran considered particular categories of persons to be more prone to fall into melancholy. This, again, was already present in Rufus's writing, but only as a, a remark. Uh, well, we don't know because it's hard to know how Rufus's book presented, but uh, what is certain is that it gained a, a lot of importance in Arabic writings, especially in Ishaq ibn Rimran's uh, treatise on melancholy. So this leads us to the second part of our paper, uh, Melancholic Delusion and in 10th century Baghdad. Well, um, and in this part, I would like to very briefly measure what was the social understanding of melancholy during the Arab Islamic Middle Ages, and especially 10th century Baghdad, but not only, because I have cases uh, not going back to the 10th century. Uh, so, one of the main problems that we are faced with is to understand the relationship between melancholy and madness, of course. Strictly speaking, madness, as Junoun, is not the name of a particular disease in theoretical treatise of the 10th century, but as Daniel said in Ibn Jumaya, it, 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 it is a disease, strictly speaking. So, so but if we, if we refer, for example, to Al-Razi's uh, comprehensive book, Kitab al-Hawi, there isn't any chapter, uh, if, correct me if I'm wrong, but 
devoted to Junun. But Junun can, can, can be present in the medical description of, of melancholy, and in this case, it is considered as a symptom, uh, as, as a symptom among symptoms, like, like you can see, and, and mostly as a symptoms of melancholy turning into mania, as you can see in the first uh, passage of the handout uh, taken from Ivan Sina's Canon of Medicine. From a medical standpoint, melancholics show symptoms indicating clearly mental derangement caused by the impairment of their hegemonical faculties. For example, they are faced with hallucinations, a clear sign of a troubled imagination, as can be seen in the case of the young man picking clay of the, of the wall, described by Al-Razi in the book of experiences which uh, Christina uh, knows well better than I do. And this is uh, the second passage of the handout. Another case described by Al-Razi is that of a woman who showed confusion in her speech. And that is the third passage of the handout. And maybe that would be the passage that comes the closest to madness. Um, I don't know. Moreover, uh, melancholy is closely linked to two other mental derangements, which are lovesickness and mania. In most medical treatises, uh, starting from Almajuzi, lovesickness is considered to be a kind of melancholy. So this is a case in Almajuzi, and this is a case in Al-Shirazi, for example. Therefore, it is no wonder that one of the treatments of lovesickness, that is sexual intercourse, is advised in the case of melancholy, for example, by Al-Razi, following here Galen uh, and Rufus, because sexual intercourse helps to empty the body of melancholic vapors before they rise to the brain. So this is the fourth, um, mm -hmm. fourth passage. Um, Sex was, was also presented, like I said, as a very important tool for lovesickness. Uh, for example, Ibn al-Jazar in the Sustainance for the Travel says that sexual intercourse is useful so that for the people whose temperament uh, is melancholic, even with a person other than a loved one. As for mania, uh, the line between melancholy and mania became more and more blurred as Arab physicians established a cycle of transformations where all the humors can eventually be altered into black bile and hence cause melancholy. Whereas traditionally, that is in Galenic views, uh, melancholy is caused by black bile and mania by yellow bile turned into black bile. Um, one particular type of melancholy, the one occurring because of burnt yellow bile, is therefore particularly close to madness. And uh, with Ibn Sina, um, the illness caused by, by, black by yellow bile turned into black bile is also, also belongs to the realm of melancholy. So melancholy tends to become, like you said, umbrella term mm -hmm. uh, for, for a, a, a very, very uh, large variety of uh, diseases uh, implying mental derangement. And, um, this medical uh, connection between melancholy and madness 
or with melancholy and mental derangement, had a strong social impact. Uh, in Islamic law, there are certain provisions for mental incapacity referred to as madness. Um, as far as, as I know, uh, I didn't find in legal handbooks, but again, I have to look into them again, I didn't find in legal handbooks cases of melancholics being, uh, being struck by incapacity because of melancholy. It's madmen, but I, I didn't find any melancholy, strict, strictly speaking. Um, and uh, uh, an anecdote I found in Michael Dove's uh, Majnoon uh, shows that whereas madness could be invoked to escape an official charge, melancholy is not a cause of incompetence. And uh, this is, um, this is uh, the, the, the six... Uh, um, however, I said that there was a strong connection between melancholy and madness in society, and this uh, I take not from uh, juridical sources, but from historical sources, uh, and especially Ibn Khalikan's uh, biography of illustrious man. Uh, we, we, we have uh, here two cases of of uh, of person who became melancholic and and the way their illness is uh, the way the illness is presented it, it looks very much like madness um, like uh, this, uh, the, the, the poet Ibn Sahel was overcome by blood bile occasioned by a fit of sickness this sickness impaired his reason to such a degree that it was necessary to chain him and confine him in a chamber. And so um, he, he wasn't a poet, he was a vizier. I'm sorry. And th this led him to lose his uh, <laughs> this led him to lose his uh, his, his, uh, his job as a vizier, because An Mahmoud then take for uh, another vizier. The poet is um, the poet is the next one uh, called Shibl uh, al who fell into a melancholic madness and was transported to the hospital where he died. So we, did, we don't know if he was treated in the hospital or not, but if he was treated, it wasn't very successful. Um, so those two cases lead me to my last point, which is um, the question whether melancholy is a malady of the elite. Because... Um, the cases I just presented in, the, in, the, in this last section affect a court poet, a vizier, in a word, the elite. And, uh, of course, this uh, peculiarity de depends on the nature of the sources I use, because the, as its title clearly states, uh, Ibn Khalikan's biographical dictionary is concerned with the life of illustrious men. But I hope to show in my research that this circumstance is not the only reason. Rather, melancholy was considered as the malady of the elite, both uh, intellectual and social. And melancholy already fit featured in Greek sources as an ailment affecting both the elite and the intellectuals. The connection be between intellectuals and melancholy goes back to references on melancholy, where melancholy is presented as an illness that can be caused by excessive thinking. Following his path, 
Ishaq ibn Imran, in his treatise on melancholy, insists on the dangers of studying at length, drawing on an aphorism by Hippocrates, according to whom reflection is the soul of the, to or, or, of the soul. Uh, so you have this uh, in uh, the section 9. Simon Swain, who was here, uh, in an article presented in the book uh, Rufus von Ehephesus on Melancholy, uh, edited by Peter Pullman, explains that in the times of Rufus's treatise, social elites were also considered targets of this illness because of their way of life. And this, this, this did not change in medieval times where melancholy acted as a railguard for elites, being the direct result of every kind of excess. Um, it would appear that the unhealthy lifestyle of, of the, the elite leave staying up late, being under social pressure, being called up by the caliph. Or, uh, it predisposed them uh, for this disease. And the most prominent example is the Egyptian uh, Sultan al-Afdal, uh, was the son of Salah al-Din. Yes, son. Yeah. Uh, Maimonides treated him repeatedly for melancholy and even wrote two medical epices, still extend, extend today, to the Sultan. And they contain extremely interesting medical advice on the topic, and one of them also contains a, a sentence which underlines the connection between melancholy and the elite, and this is the last uh, section of uh, the handout. Um, and from that point of view, I think that melancholy is, it sure is a disease, but it's also kind of a, a vice, uh, like a, a, it has something to do with bad moral habits. To conclude, uh, I would say that in Arabo-Islamic medicine and society, melancholy is an illness located somewhere between madness and depression. Uh, and I understand this last term as uh, only the translation of ka'abi in Arabic, and not in the uh, modern sense of the term, although it shows common features. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, now, just open the floor for um, a discussion. But before I do so, I mean, in this, this discussion, we can discuss everything from Peregrine's favor to, to what you've just said, to your responses. Uh, but also uh, about where should we go from here? Because uh, we, throughout the day, we, we have had um, a variety of, of different topics, uh, ranging from hospitals to what is melancholy to... Um, yeah, I, you know them all, <laughs> um, which made me already mad. But um, so I think that's a wealth of, of topics we, we kind of discussed. So the, the question here is, where should we take this? Where, do you, what would you think would be a good idea to continue this if we should continue this? Um, so these are the two two main things we um, we should discuss in the I don't know remaining. What should we say? What's the time we have? Yeah, it's about five to six. Five to six. Um, those those who go to dinner, we need to be at Ashami at around six. six. Well, I booked sure, sure. it. <laughs> <laughs> I booked it at six thirty, but if we turn up later, they would understand. Absolutely. They they would understand. I mean, if we do seven, but if you do about thirty minutes of discussion, I think that would be not drivers too mad. <laughs> uh, well, thank you both for, for great presentations. Um, I'm 
uh, I'm interested in the material in both of them for very personal reasons in terms of my research, but uh, I want to try to connect up these, these two um, in, in, in a number of ways. First of all, in terms of um, Western medieval understandings, say a century after, um, or within the century following Saladin, uh, you've got terminology that's heavily influenced by Ibn Sina and, and uh, Al-Majusi, and the primary distinction between mania and melancholia, which are always connected in my sources, um, is counterintuitive, for, for me at least. Mania is uh, a lack of control of imagination, while, which is the res retention of images into the brain and, and interpretation of it. I'm uh, sorry, into the, into the soul, or the mind. Uh, whereas melancholy is lack of ability to reason. Now, in our modern sense, we might think they the other way around, perhaps, but at least the lack of reason should be closer to madness or not mania. So I'm kind of intrigued by what the text might say um, in terms of, uh, of that distinction, because I'm pretty sure that probably does come out in Sina. Um, but the, the connection I want to make in terms of is, is treatment, and that is that, again, in the Western sources, what you get are these descriptions that seem to come straight out of the hospital, uh, spatial descriptions of treatment by fountains with running clear water, by music, but there's no indication that this is done in a hospital, or it just it just uses the word domus. It doesn't you know, use the word domus, uh, you know, the house of sickness. Um, it, you know, it could easily be the domestic space. So trying to, again, place um, where one would treat both of these illnesses, mania and melancholy, and the lack of distinction between these. Two questions, but... Um, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to do that. <laughs> comments, really. Well, yeah. Bill, can, can, can you be a bit more precise about where you're reading this? Oh, uh, okay, I'm reading... Uh, these are... Uh, Not to get bogged down in detail, sure, sure. just what uh, sort of... Around 1300... Um, what sort of work? Uh, Burned to Gordon, my know of... of yeah. Um, people like that. Uh, so yeah. regimen and yeah. and uh, mythological texts. Well, they're talking about their dramas is that's that's how and I'm it's the sort of home in which you might have a fountain too. Yeah. Right. Okay. Sit but the, but the okay. language is, is is quite so similar to the, the description of the hospitals. That well, that's that because you wonder where which is coming out of which. Yeah. Well, that's because both are um, offshoots of uh, the Galenic. Yeah. Tradition, late antiquity, the encyclopedias, which is essentially a dietary and um, a little bit of emotional, uh, cognitive therapy, as we, yeah. we might call it, is my, no, my short answer. Thank you. Uh, yeah. No, I think that uh, I would have to check, I know maybe it's in your hand there, but um, yeah, melancholy, as far as Al Cascari is concerned, uh, was treated, well, he treated melancholy at least a case of melancholy, in a hospital in Baghdad. Um, so it's one example. I think we can find more of them. But it's true that when... Because uh, all those physicians were also treating people uh, in... People were coming to see them not only in hospitals. So sometimes when they relate case studies, they don't bother to say, I met him in a hospital. Uh, there is a case by Kusta uh, Ibn Luka in his treatise on Blackbird when he explains how he treated 
uh, a, a man suffering from melancholy and a symptom with a lack of sleep and so on. Mm -hmm. and, uh, but he, sa he only says, I treated uh, a melancholic. He doesn't say where. I'd like to pick up on the point that Ian brought up, which is the extent to which we locate madness in the individual. Uh, one thing that my sources are quite strong on is the notion of the insanogenic society. In other words, certain ways of thinking and living are more likely to bring about distress and, in quotes, madness. And fascinatingly, it's something my psychiatric supervisors are quite keen on as well. And you can plot various graphs and look at, for instance, the instance of depression, which starts to look suspiciously like a hockey stick, and that of schizophrenia starts to look suspiciously like a, a banana curving upwards, as does that of personality disorder, as does that of drug addiction over the last hundred years. And I think that, well, where do, I, where do we go from here? I suppose one aspect of it is to what extent can psychiatrists or healers ever look at the society as a whole? And to what extent are we compelled to concentrate on the individual? Or conversely, to what extent through concentrating on an individual are we ever focusing on the whole? I did, um, and it was for Matthew, really. Um, I was interested in what you were saying about um, psychiatrists not having a unitary idea of um, mental disorder or therapy, and in particular of the Maudsley. Um, and so that led me to think about how the Maudsley might be um, a particular case in terms of the history of British psychiatry and British psychiatry perhaps being um, very eclectic and empirical and theoretically cautious. Um, but it also made me wonder about perhaps a distinction between clinical thinking and then the sort of more public-facing statements of the psychiatric profession. I don't know if that is a distinction that makes any sense you as a, as a practitioner. But so my question for you is, um, given what your research has shown about this lack of a kind of, you know, unitary sort of monolithic picture of disorders, um, what do you make of the critique that people that I'm looking at are very worried about? Um, the idea that things like the DSM have an incredible discursive power that disseminate um, very, very strongly partly through the media, but also through very technical aspects of how clinical trials operate in relation to um, gasification within the DSM. So I'm thinking people like Chris, Waters, Chris Waters and Kirkland Cutchins, their sociological critiques of the DSM, David Healy, his work. So I'm just interested in the kind of tension between that picture of psychiatry as, as sort of very dominant discursively in terms of its concepts of mental Disorders and the picture that you draw in terms of practice. And I guess I'm, I'm aware that, you know, if you, if you work as a research in an area, you work at the edge of the sort of looking forward. The DSM looks, you know, quite old fashioned through sitting, I think, about schizophrenia. So I think very much like, you know, um, Atha did about his, uh, the variance of the incidence rates of the disorder are probably quite a fair bit explained by the society which people develop in. Um, and that's one of the big challenges I think that psychiatrists have to face, things like you know, racism and, and mm -hmm. second generation from Caribbean migrants, etc. etc. Um, so I guess, yeah, I find that kind of 
hegemonic discourse a bit strange. I don't feel it myself. Then I'm a UK psychiatrist, but I don't have the pressure of medical insurance or perhaps so much the pharmaceutical industry. I know people like, I mean, as Bill mentioned her earlier, Nancy Andreasen, who I think was an author of DSM-3, revised, and DSM-4. Almost, you know, I didn't think it was going to end up like this. It was meant to be a, a, a spur to research, not a hegemonic metaphysics, what it's, what it's become in, 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 its, in its worst sense, really. So I'm not sure if Bill wants to... Well, yeah, because uh, I agree with that. And you're right, the DSM has um, achieved great sort of dominance mm. by in a sort of rhetorical way. Mm. But actually, I mean, within psychiatry uh, and within certainly within the wider mental health movement, um, its influence is very restricted. It, mm. Its power in America is because the only way you can get money to pay yeah. for your patients to be treated is to get them the DSM category. Yeah. I used to just publish papers. I use yeah. ISD 10 clinically and DSM 4 for writing papers. But I mean, just, just to a couple of more specific points about that. One is. Um, about current practice. I mentioned that joint work with um, Tony Colombo and people, which uh, I was saying was an example of what Austin, I think, was approved of in the philosophical field work. And that showed that um, actually, although in a way we, I mean, we, we all claim to, everybody with mental health claims to work with a biopsychosocial model. And indeed, that's what we think we work with. But actually, what we found was that psychiatrists tend to come with a more medical social workers with a more psychological and sexual model, nurses feel torn between them, and this was quite dramatic. These were within well-functioning multidisciplinary teams. Then what we also found was that um, our patients and carers in the same um, study, that, that we, we, we had a sort of level playing field methodology so that everybody responded to the same question in the same way. Uh, our patients and carers shared the same range of models. And so actually, this um, multiplicity of models turned out to be something that was rather important in terms of a balanced approach to management, because if your team includes not just different skill sets, but also different perspectives, then you're that better equipped to match your response appropriately to the perspective of the individual patient. So I think that's quite a strong source, sorry, about far from psychiatry being in a mess or having these different models. Um, actually, we get into a mess if we think you can push it all into one sort of so I think at that level it's very important that we own and celebrate our diversity, if you like. I think it's also important theoretically because one of the reasons we have this variety of models is because we're a subject that is very much at the sort of cutting edge of ideas about how the mind and perhaps we should say the brain works, certainly. Um, and that um, to have a, a variety of models isn't a mark of a necessarily a mark of a subject that's in chaos, and, and I always use the example of theoretical physics, which has these two fantastic theories, quantum mechanics and relativity, that are not only um, covering different ranges of phenomena, they're mathematically inconsistent. Mm -hmm. and, and, and yet we've worked really successfully with two models for the first part of 100 years, um, and nobody that's a, you know, neither it. So I think at that level it's important to own it. But having said that, I think um, if we don't actually just with a little bit of history, the other thing I mentioned was the um, the contribution of um, Aubrey Lewis and um, Carl Hempel to the development of our current classification. And uh, as, as Matthew said, um, they've, the, the ICD, the World Health Organization classification, as well as the DSM, um, have been taken way out of the context for which they were originally intended. Mm. And um, 
I mean, just on, on route, Alan Francis, who's the chair of the DSM for transport, so the current DSM, has uh, gone public uh, on, you know, in, 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 the, uh, in, in the web world with his concerns about the way in which DSM-5 is going to amplify the mistakes that he felt the DSM-4 group made in DSM-4 in overextending the boundaries of this order and having these, this, this, this sort of ridiculous proliferation of, of, of categories and so on and bringing the whole thing into disrepute. And if you go back even further, where that approach to classification came from, where we focus very much on the symptoms, the experiences and behaviours that we're observing, um, it was intended uh, by uh, actually a group that met rather like this group in New York in 1959, uh, tackling the, the problems of how were we going to, in that post-war period, put um, psychiatry onto a proper basis internationally. And one of the tools that was needed was a tool for international comparisons. And the suggestion that came very specifically from Walter Lewis and Carl Hempel, who were philosopher and psychiatrists contributing different ideas to this meeting, um, was that the best way to get international agreement was to, for that purpose, focus on symptom-based categories, which we knew we could identify reliably, and therefore would have a degree of comparability around the world. And that very precise use of these categories would be used, and, and Aubrey Lewis actually says in this meeting, for this purpose, this type of classification seems to fit the bill. It's got decent philosophy of science credentials, which he's taken from Carl Hempel. For other purposes, and um, particularly for research purposes, many other ways of thinking about mental disorder um, will continue to be appropriate. It's almost like among consenting adults, was not that how you put it. But so that, that very precise use for this, this dominant classification, approach to classification, has just been just taken out of all proportion. The drivers are economic, they're not scientific, and they're certainly not uh, clinical and practical. When you move out of that very Scan of medicine, mm -hmm. which also doesn't cite sources very much, very seldom. 
and uh, or again was thought by people to have pretty much arranged medical knowledge in such a way that everything was said. I mean, didn't, it wasn't really anything else that was rather in it. A humorous aside. Well, no, funny enough, Norman Sartorius, who was the uh, actually Norman worked with um, Aubrey Lewis in developing the glossary to ICDA, which is the first symptom based classification that <coughs> came before the DSM classifications. Um, but then um, he was actually the author of, or the, the chair of the group for the World Health Organization, and he was head of the mental health section at the time, and he produced ICD 10 which is the equivalent of DSM-4. I'm sorry about these terrible acronyms, but you get the basic idea. And he came uh, to here to Oxford, because uh, Michael Gelder, who was the professor of psychiatry at the time, knew him well. And he came actually gave a talk in the seminar uh, series there. Um, and I asked him this question, well, so you, do you think Norman will there be another um, edition of the ICD? And he said, well, no, he said, uh, I think it's all been said. We've got it. It's a bit mad, isn't it? The idea that you could sort of have a representation of the state of psychiatry and it's there, yes. clear. It's and, sort and, of a bit of craziness. Well, and absolutely. Yeah. And, and went so, <laughs> it went so against everything that was said in ICD-8 and ICD-9, um, where um, it was very much seen as, um, I mean, um, Norman Zartoris himself introduced ICD-9 with um, the, the idea that classification is a snapshot of the state of the science mm -hmm. point in time. Mm -hmm. And then he suddenly moved to, uh, you know, <laughs> to this, this idea, somehow we've done the job now, you know, there's been no more development from here. I, I'd also like to say that the, the whole discussion today, I think, has been incredibly um, sort of um, exciting for me to hear, because the, the idea of actually dipping into this um, you know, between us into this interdisciplinary way, into these very tr different traditions of thought and practice, is precisely where I think we can start to break out of this straitjacket. And certainly I've learned a great deal. I I'm not sure whether you historians have learned very much from us as psychiatrists, but um, that's certainly been a very powerful process for me to actually see some of these uh, debates going on in these very different contexts and think how we might think them through. Well, I think there are the three people, anyway, who have indicated they want to say some things before we get on to the future. If I may go back to the question of Islamic or Arab medicine, um, in answer to the question you raised, uh, I'm not a historian, I'm a and my reference to whatever I say is this book of my old psychiatric teacher, Professor Al-Mahi of Sudan. And he quotes a lot of uh, incidents of treatment of psychiatric illness in, in, in the Abbasid and Umayyad kingdoms before that. Um, and he, he quotes uh, Al Razi and Ibn Sina and the Bakhtashu family. These were the stars of medicine in, in, in those days. They did certainly treat mainly psychoneurotic illness and psychosomatic disorders and conversion hysteria. Uh, I remember I quoted earlier on the, the, the treatment of the, uh, the man who, who has, was not sick by some form of behavior therapy. Um, he also says that opium was used quite a lot in treatment of psychotic illness in those days. Um, um, 
whether these people were involved in hospital treatment or not, I don't know. But, but he did talk about, uh, I don't know what the English word for Bilmer's town. Anyway, we started. The first one was actually built by Al Walid ibn Abdul Malik. Way, way in the. Anyway, that's what he says. Uh, well, yes. Uh, well, thank you. The, the, there are some narratives which are out there in the um, in the, the more synthetic books, which specialists, not myself, have altered uh, a little bit. Uh, my, my general point is, yes, of course, we can find particular instances, um, uh, as Pavlina has shown us here, but statistically, what do they add up to? Now, your man can't actually answer that for me, because he can only produce these, no, was, these was vignettes. Not, it was not a proper story, I think it was just a compiler. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, then he, he mentioned that, uh, as, as a hospital by, as built by Ahmed ibn Tawlam in Egypt. Yeah. About the ones of 10th century, yeah. which uh, I suppose all these hospitals were actually for people with chronic illness, whether it's physical or mental. Yeah. And and, of, and he said the, 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 that hospital in, in Egypt went into decline, and all the physically ill left, and general left. The, the, the only the people with chronic psychotic illness stayed there. Mm-hmm. But he mentions names of people like Saeed ibn Lawful, Saddiyyim, Muhammad ibn Abdullah al-Masr, and Muhammad ibn Abdul as people who were working in this hospital as psychiatrists, I presume, in that general position. But he also, these hospitals were used as medical schools, where doctors were trained as well. Uh, well, I'm sure that, um, that that's largely true. My, my general question was statistically what does this amount to? And also, um, as a caveat, that we shouldn't assume, unless we have an anecdote, and we think we can rely on every last detail of the anecdote, that for a physician active in a hospital is necessarily actually treating actively and in a sustained way the, um, the mentally ill patients, rather than <laughs> keeping them under lock and key. Can I give just a brief comment? I don't know if yeah. it's but I mean, again, Catherine, well, but I think the ratio of psychiatrists to patients in, in some of the Victorian asylums was, was massive. I think just practically even in the Victorian era, I think psychiatrists were probably actually not treat. They wander around and maybe supervise a bit. But that would be yeah. as far as... It's, it's, again, it's more than what some of these asylums have been rescued um, by recent historiography, and there are people in there doing their, their level best. I, I can't remember any of the, any of the figures. Um, but yes, the, the case... Case books, <laughs> so far as we can I'd probably do, do suggest that. Mm. But I suppose most mental illness in those days, and still, it's still happening in Sudan now, mm. patients are treated by so called holy men with potions, with bits of the Quran, with herbs, dietary conditions. Unfortunately, they might be good in treating psychoneurotic, at least not harmful in treating psychoneurotic illness. It's only when it comes to psychosis that uh, the prejudice occur because yeah. they chain these people, they whip them, they starve yes. them, and they block them. And they, and they still, but they're still doing they still it. Do, This one is also directed to my good neighbor, Peregrine, out there, so... I'm wondering if you've put much thought into the possible reasons behind the apparent uh, uniqueness, as 
secretive here in the case of Islam when it comes to the uh, hospital asylums um, and and uh, things seriously, particularly with you know theological concepts such yeah. as the fire, public duty, and masalim of public utility, tying in to what Matthew mentioned earlier about prevention of harm yeah. for the public, and I think Abzal regards to you know custom mm -hmm. your, um, um, yeah, well, you'll have to educate me more on that because I'll call public utility is uh, sounds like to me like a concept that has equivalents in the West. Yeah, it goes back to ancient political theory, and that doesn't produce insane asylums. Um, so I would need to know what the exact resonance of, of this is. Yes, uh, perhaps one can give this an intellectual context. I, I don't yet know what it is. Discuss, but it's, it would need to be, as well, uh, sharper than that. Mm. Um, I think it's also important that these are secular environments, because one reason, one very good reason for not having uh, psychotics in, a, in an ordinary hospital is, uh, of course, they will make a lot of noise, they will disturb the other patients, they will uh, pollute the, the sacraments. Um, and they're not very good at presumably at praying for you. Yeah. You, the founder, and the, the, the first, the, the most important um, beneficiary of, of a medieval European hospital is not the patients, it's the founder. The patients are there to pray for the founder's soul. Now, I don't know whether a psychotic could, could do that very effectively. Uh, so it's, it's, there are many reasons why it doesn't work, and so I'm not expecting to find this... Uh, a regular occurrence. I think there's more than we've we've allowed for, but that may be uh, a crucial uh, variable that you need a, a secular space in, in which these are, uh, are happening. Bit of a flimflam, but uh, there is a theological argument that the prayers of a psychotic person are the most effective. Yeah. <laughs> Depending on the state of mind they're in, because they're a innocent, b possibly broken-hearted. So there's said to be no barrier between their prayers and the divine. Uh, but that may be a minority position. Yes, well, I don't know. Know. <laughs> 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 yeah, I, I just had a very simple question. Uh, uh, I wondered if you, if you uh, uh, took into consideration what you thought about uh, architectural proofs, uh, in brackets, I mean, like uh, if if you visit the Vimarisen, uh, the famous Vimarisen in Aleppo, mm -hmm. which has uh, little cells, which yeah. I, I heard were for uh, insane, but uh, I mean... The storerooms too, you don't really know. Yeah, yeah exactly, so that's what... Are there any, yeah. are there any no. more serious studies on those... Oh, it's only like... Totally. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I'm going to now insist before we to let you out of here that we consider what might we might do in the future for a perhaps larger general meeting. Uh, um, I'd like to have your ideas. I've, I've come down with uh, I've six different topics, thing, uh, ways in which we could focus what, are, what has emerged from this meeting into a possibly different format, looking at certain 
uh, issues, perhaps, in which we could draw together again a comparison of modern uh, interpretations, modern models, and medieval ones. Any ideas? I wonder if you could expand the focus a little bit geographically and look at Chinese and Central Asian, Mongol, Tibetan, yes, I think I think one of the problems, not that it was bad, but I felt a bit like on a, on a children's birthday where you would have all these different things and you'd try from all of, you know, cake and coke. And, you know, your stomach. and then you feel quite not. I'm not feeling sick, but still, you have so many different um, impressions. I mean, we covered so much, and so I think an idea would be to focus on some of these things because madness, obviously, is I don't know. As you've seen, we covered I don't know ten, twelve different topics today. Um, so um, an idea would be. As you said, I mean, if you want to look at China, that, that would be another <laughs> plus on the list. I thought the focus was going to be on the court of Saladin anyway. <laughs> 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 I was completely deluded. <laughs> you can't keep to one, to one topic, quite obviously. Well, let me just run, just since none of you are jumping in here. Uh, some topics. I mean, one of the things I thought was noticeably lacking from the Islamic side was any discussion of suicide, or, uh, or harm to self, or harm to others. And all of the, uh, the that I recall, all of the, uh, the cases or anecdotes or whatever, uh, in describing a person's aberrant behavior, uh, never mentioned that. So uh, that's a, a notion. How, how much is the idea of suicide or self-harm or harm to others, a part of defining a mentally disturbed person in the Islamic society versus the modern world. I'd like to know how much, what role that plays in sort of classifying mental illness today. So that, that's one idea. Uh, <coughs> sorry. Uh, please, please jump in here. Yes. Yeah, I, I would be interested, for example, um, in the concept of possession. Kind of uh, because of this uh, Majnun thing, so we had Jin in the room several times. But it would be quite interesting, for example, if there's any concern to put the mad people together with the with the just physically sick, because then the physically sick would be very weak, so they could kind of fall easily prey to the Jin that are around, for example. Um, and then if there's kind of in traditional medicine the concept how to. Um, deal with possessed people, which is somehow taken up in the more serious medical tradition, if there's any interrelation between these two. And it did, did not you mention a patient who thought she was possessed? Well, um, no, the, 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 I think the connection is, is a patient who presented with um, symptoms that in the ICD or DSM you would identify as marking out somebody with serious pathology, so madness, schizophrenia, manic depressive illness, the sort of things we've been talking about today, um, but who actually turned out to be um, at the level of functioning, which we touched on earlier, um, doing very well. This was the, the lawyer case. Yes, yes. And um, so it was a sort of point where the 
and you only rely on the symptoms breaks down, if you like, and, and this you're going to stretch the idea of benign illness to to success, as it were. Um, so I think, but I do think that your general point, I agree with. I think that boundary is a way of focusing um, how a larger meeting might work. So, in a sense, we're not just talking about madness; we're talking about the boundaries of madness, the, or perhaps the boundary between madness and possession, or madness and creativity, and how that is being managed. And, and in fact, the suicide thing would fit with this, I think, to some extent. I'm aware because it's always very difficult to know where to get to put the boundaries of our subjects. But um, certainly that's something, and, and I think to me what would be interesting about that boundary issue is that, well, there have been many things that would be interesting about One of the things is that it would actually tie very much with current priorities um, in terms of, um, uh, well, again, it's been touched on, the idea that um, one of the things that makes working in the area of mental health very complex is that what's good or bad isn't obvious. Mm -hmm. So that actually things that in some ways are very bad may also be very good in other ways. Things that are good at one time or in one context or bad in another context. And um, how you manage that. And a lot of current um, policy priorities, particularly in this country, um, and uh, well, this country and, and, and in New Zealand um, and in certain states of, of, of America, um, this is only people taking very seriously in terms of the whole idea of how you manage mental distress and disorder so that you're not just looking at controlling symptoms because the methods we use to control symptoms may actually severely damage quality of life in other respects that matter more to people even when they have something which they and everybody else understand as a mental disorder and so an obvious example is very powerful drugs for essentially Matthew put me right on this but I mean they're effective for treating excitement so the neuroleptic drugs we use for treating um, madness um, actually have a hugely dampening effect on every other aspect of the person's life, by and large, and that whilst it may be useful for a very short periods to control extreme excitement, what you're also doing is removing their drive and motivation and the ability to establish relationships, to get a job, to do all the things that make life worthwhile to, to brains. And, and this has been known for a long time, and we've never moved past outcome objective, as even I were discussing, which just says that our, 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 a good outcome medically is that we suppress symptoms regardless. So there's a sort of complex story there which has been picked up very much in terms of current policy and service development. Um, how we work with a more complex, messier, but perhaps richer, more appropriate picture of um, you know, how we manage these, these conditions is clearly something that's challenged societies you know, through the last 2,000 years. And this is very much an area where careful study of what's been done and how it's been in the past, I think, you know, we, I'd like to broaden this in the sense of bringing other constituencies into a future meeting. And I'm thinking here particularly of well, two constituencies that I think um, are absent, certainly in terms of self-identification. And one is um, people responsible for um, you know, policy and service development, um, you know, perhaps at the national level, certainly at the local level, so managers and um, uh, and, and, and people at, at that level, um, and um, people who are involved in these new initiatives very much because they have personal experience of mental distress and disorder. So service users and carers themselves. Um, the two big projects I've been working on recently with my department, Health Matter, on have both been in partnership with 
uh, people who are there and that pretend as experts by experience. And it just completely transformed how we've done those projects. Uh, I hope that much to do with it. But it's just, uh, and, and um, I, I would like to put that on the table as something where we could build on the kind of special things there, perhaps with a larger meeting, maybe over two days rather than just one day. I know that really <coughs> multiplies the challenge of uh, the, the, the sort of logistics of it enormously. But there is a huge example, I think, in having a more extended, I, I feel we're getting into things mm. just when we're going to break up. Could I suggest that the kind of um, issues and, and suggestions that you're making right there could be put under a kind of um, heading of therapy, if we will, if we, and we look, because that again is a topic we actually haven't talked about within the medieval context that much, and to talk about uh, what models of therapy, what evidence we had of therapy through the case histories, and then that would tie in with the modern, uh, bringing in very, um, uh, a different constituencies, as you said, who are concerned with the management of uh, health care mm. today. That might I think that's a great idea. idea. The, the only thing I would say is that I, I think you have to be a bit careful with the word therapy. Well, I was, yes, sure. I mean, I'm thinking of sort of something that's that's more inclusive and carries less sort of theoretical expectations, will it? Because treatment to a, in a in a medieval context, I think, implies it incorporates many of the ideas mm. that, yeah. that you're working. And so, and so it does uh, in principles of work, but actually, it uses the therapy. Actually, if you if you say treatment in a health context. I think most most people would think medical treatment. If you say therapy, most people will think psychotherapy. Uh, so, so, you, so you're already So we need something, but we need some, a term that historians understand also. And, and if, you say, if you say managing, it sounds manipulative. If you say healing, it sounds alternative. But you can't come with it. But actually, some, something maybe with more um, proactive such association, as. such as, as working with, working with, 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 with madness. How does, that, how does that strike yeah. the historian? Working with mental disorders. Historians then work with. So that, that uh, perhaps we, we need a meeting on terminology. And again, maybe, maybe if, you, if you do, and I'm not suggesting to say we should do this, but if you do think it's a good idea to broaden the constituencies, that we should actually work, work with a small group of people representing the constituencies to think the best way in which the meeting might be shaped up and presented, terminology that's used, the expectations of the meeting, because that in turn will very much drive what we're going to have to. May I suggest, Emily, a worthwhile gap to plant here would be to take into account the legal constituents. Uh, yes. I think it ties in with your point about uh, uh, self harm as well. and. Absolutely, and it's a huge aspect we haven't really addressed. And, and on the medieval side, it's interesting to, I mean, look, looking at Professor Van Helder's uh, uh, foul whisperings, uh, the reception of that foul whisperings, and see, you know, on the one hand we have Hadad, mm. and then you have um, people who try to defend Hadad by saying that, well, he was mad, so don't take, you know, you didn't have to take him seriously. <laughs> so, indeed, the, 
the legal perspective would, would uh, come the legal into perspective, view. and that would fit with the modern, you know, they're also modern yeah. uh, mm -hmm. legal mm -hmm. aspects to def both definition and uh, the impact that has. But, but, but I'm throwing these ideas, and I'm just looking to the, the historians who I haven't worked with before. Does this all sound like the recipe for chaos and mayhem, or do you think it could be something? <laughs> Is your experience today something that would encourage you to sort of broaden the constituencies, or do you think we've got a as much as we can handle to do another meeting. <laughs> well, I'm going to suggest yet another constituency. <laughs> um, I didn't get a drink at lunch either. Uh, which is the medical anthropologist. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. We've got historians and clinicians. You know, you know medical like anthropologists that. often tie up with historians. sometimes have to push, I feel today, to, uh, to, um, to get that, because the, the clinicians have often been so anxious to meet us on, on our own, own ground. They, they've been hesitant uh, in, sometimes about telling us what, uh, simply oh, about what they do, mm. yes, which, that's about which I know nothing, I want to know more. Yes, I would very much, as a historian, I would like to hear more of the perspective of modern uh, practicing uh, psychiatrists and so on, and philosophers. And their take on what we're saying, mm -hmm. uh, I think, would be. I don't know how, how, how far back you prepared to go uh, in defining modern? I mean, I, I'm. I was trying to think. You know, some of the examples we were hearing from you um, in the medieval world, and then we have this sort of jump to the bedlam type uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, situation mm -hmm. in the 18th century, uh, and then in the 19th century, um, some people begin to try and use drug treatment, um, thinking of um, James Crichton Brown, for example, and Conian of Maine in the middle of the 19th century. And then you've got this riot of, um, in, among some people of surgery for psychosis, uh, all based on a bacteriological principle. And some really, I mean, lots of people I, I gather have written about this. I've only read one book, Madhouse, by um, Andrew Skull. Um, and then how things have evolved to where you are now. And I'm interested in, if you're going to make a comparison, where do you compare the medieval world to that trajectory of mental health care from, let's say, the 18th century in Europe through to now? Or do you want to keep the focus on the Middle East? <laughs> There's a danger in trying to do everywhere. I know you talked about Byzantium. Do we keep the focus on the Middle East, or do we keep it on just the medieval time period and bring in more Western? Or do you want the Middle East, medieval, early modern, modern? It's huge and complex. Well, they're both, they're both huge, aren't they? Mm. I mean, you're, you're, I think you raise a very good point, Ian, because you're, what are you comparing the earlier period with? And, and at the moment, I think the initial idea was strictly sort of today. Yeah. And and taking somewhat arbitrarily, I suppose, 
a medieval period, a focus that we didn't exactly hold it to. So, um, it would be interesting to compare it with the 18th century, particularly, and then again in the 19th century, because you see very distinct changes. But will that be as much of interest to the um, medical community today? That's a little bit more of a historical exercise. What do people think? My, my take on it that is that, um, again, my medical colleagues are probably right on this, but I think we're aware of not what work being done on the 19th and 18th century, particularly in the European context. Mm -hmm. um, and what was exciting about this idea and was originally from, from uh, Daniel, I think, the discussion we had over, just, you know, over a glass of wine one evening. Um, and and, and I, my eyes lit up when I got to the push. There was this whole um, swathe of work um, that looked really interesting. There was a really new dimension on it. So my, my instinct would be to, to stick with that for purposes of this sort of series of, of, of meetings, which isn't to say that those comparisons then wouldn't be important and interesting in their own right. <coughs> and from what I've experienced today, my instinct is that, um, that there'll be some, some really interesting things to come out of, of this period and this process. Mm -hmm. Maybe for, for, for this group and the development of this group to focus on that, but, uh, but I, I don't know what, what my colleagues felt about it. I, I think um, I agree what Bill is saying. Uh, I mean, it will be very good to look at what that will be developed in 17th century, 17th century, and 19th century. Because possibly we will, it will be good if we can just focus what is available now. And then we can all, that will certainly uh, include what has happened in 18th and 19th century. So that will, rather than going into those details, uh, looking at what we have looked at and then looking at what we are looking at now. That will probably be, that not only save time, but will also give us some more uh, uh, food for thought. Mm -hmm. yeah. not looking Our chair is a professor of Islamic history and beside her is a professor of Arabic. Where would they be if we exclude them in this medieval period? <laughs> we're, not, we're not just dealing with comparison and the history of madness or whatever but I would have thought that one major part is that we're having the perspective of from present day practitioners so on the medieval so that we are, as medievalists we understand more what's going on in the medieval because of another perspective and maybe Work the other way around as well. Mm. Yeah. As if we could uh, develop that more, where I think we are getting uh, um, those of us who look at medieval material would really find very useful yeah. perspective yeah. Yeah. of modern practitioners on the kinds of material that we have. Yes. I was just going to say, I, mean, I, I find appealing, I guess, what point you made about looking at uh, models of etiology, treatment, and uh, taxonomy. So I guess the thing that intrigues me as an area of research I'm keeping to work on in contemporary research is this kind of attitude of psychiatrist stuff. So our models of these children have to affect how we treat people democratically and uh, as, a, as a doctor, and also how we arrange their symptoms. So I think I would like the kind of, um, so Peregrine, you touched on sort of this, the models of disorder that go on in these people's heads. So a bit more of an elaboration of what Aristotelianism and Galenism mm -hmm. means in mm -hmm. mental illness. Mm -hmm. I think you could prove a story I, I'd be interested in hearing, and then we'll be interested in how it maps out mm -hmm. in contemporary psychiatry. I think certainly that kind of 
what I call the metaphysics of illness, how it works in your period you're interested in, how it works in contemporary psychiatry, that's something I'm getting interested in now. And I mean, I guess what struck me is I'm beginning to look at um, doing some studies of interviewing styles in psychiatrists, and there's nothing. Medical sociologists are poured over GPs, cancer doctors, paediatricians, but psychiatrists, for some reason, those people think our contact is too intimate or detailed, or, but we, we've not been examined. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's intriguing, just as a sort of fact of science, that when I look, trying to find papers on what, like, what it is like to interview somebody, I can't find it. Yeah. It's not you guys, not, you know, not looking at the work, it's just not there. Um, so it's very, and compared to other medical specialties, we're, we're, we're somehow immune from this gaze. <laughs> Comparison of models would be in another way. Mm. I, I don't mean to usurp this. Do you want to? No, no, no. I, 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 <coughs> you know, I like all Americans like to talk. So. <laughs> um, so if I could just um, put in a word for the anthropologist again, because mm. I think if we're talking about models, um, I mean, anthropologists, stroke, social scientists, people like Tony Colombo and Joe Bendelow, um, mm -hmm. you know, would be, I think, really interesting people to involve, but certainly if, if we're thinking about taking it forward as a research focus rather than a wider public event sort of thing, which is we've also talked about, mm -hmm. and which I think we perhaps do need to, to, to think about. That was my next <coughs> yes, I think we need to consider what, how we want to do it, and what format to do it. Mm -hmm. Is it a Well, the best idea would be to spread it out over a couple of days. Mm -hmm. Mentioned two. If we involve more, I mean, for this workshop, many, many people want to come and have the problem of explaining no, it's only for 25 specially picked, uh, extraordinary. Um, <laughs> extraordinary. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's, this is good, um, and we should definitely try to keep it, but um, in the terms of uh, engaging a wider uh, audience. I mean, you know, you could have a different setup, like, you know, a key lecture, which is then open to the public or for more people, and then have these um, specialized discussions and then um, look at certain things on, on our list and try to focus on them. Would you not think that the local would be interested, perhaps more interested in funding of quite a public event as opposed to... Oh, yes. Yes, I think, uh, yes. I think too. Why did you involve the attendance and make people pay a fee or something? Well, we never think of that. Subsidizing. Well, I think that the welcome would. The welcome would support support yeah. it. Um, I, I don't think money in that sense is, is, is a big problem if uh, you, if you want to involve the public, um, and certainly it doesn't cost that much. Um, if you involve more people, it's just in terms of rooms. You have to go for a different venue. But, um, well, what about the format that um, Daniel and Bill devised of one you know, a paper and some respondents? Is that a, a, would that work within a public I think that's less likely to work well mm. for a wider audience. Mm. You, you do or do not, I'm sorry. I think it's less likely to work well mm. in a way because mm. I think it relies on a better coordination of more people to be able to speak to a wider audience, which, I mean, I'm not saying they can't do that, but it's just, mm -hmm. I think it's a more specific task. Mm. 
I thought it very interesting. I mean, just you know, trying to to be a lay person. I, um, if I just take the last um, discussion we had between Peregrine and you, I thought that was highly fascinating because both of you had to break it down um, so that he could understand you and the other way around. So Noah was talking uh, over, and, and you brought examples from your practice, which I thought were fast, fascinating, which would illuminate his work, and you could kind of see his eyes lightening up and say, oh. <laughs> I'm actually so, surprised that Catherine's saying that, because in fact her response was one of the ones that was sort of lit, lit. No, no, but I think I've been misunderstood. I'm not saying that I don't think positive engagement should be a part of it. I just, I'm not sure that the paper plus three responses is necessarily the best way to do something for a you know, potentially hugely wide range of an audience who, I mean, because yes, we're talking across disciplines here, but we're all academic. And so I think, you know, when you're, when you're really thinking about inviting... Let, let's say you actually ask um, a suitably about. warned patient, um, what are you going to make of this, these... Um, academics talking about these things. Do you see any relevance to what's being said? Mm -hmm. They might say, well, I hadn't thought of actually going um, and being in a place where there's music and a water fountain um, and nice circumstances. I never thought of that. Isn't that interesting that it was something which was um, accepted as fairly normal in some parts of the world um, a thousand years ago? Um, I don't know. All I'm saying is that, that, that I thought, after all, there were only two respondents for most of the present um, presentations today. They didn't last very long. They brought um, another dimension. Um, all, I think all of them brought um, uh, new perspectives on what's been said in the main talk. I thought it worked very well. Yeah. I like the, the dialogue. Now, right, today we had the historians giving the lectures and then the yes. clinicians responding. Yeah. But why not have people in pairs and <coughs> alternate? Yeah, yes. why not make kind of not a respondent but kind of two lectures just two. coupled on the same subject? On, on the same topic. Yeah. Mm. So a clinician and a historian. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Mm. And then get lots can, of feedback from the audience. Yeah, I mean, can, can I just say, taking that model with, um, with the philosophy of psychiatry stuff, um, that actually we, we, it, it didn't work just asking people to do two lectures. And what did work was when we could get people to work together in developing their mm -hmm. two lectures. So I think, um, and that, it's a much bigger commitment. Um, yeah. I think we all, you know, I'm sure we're all of us are thinking, God, how am I going to manage this? So, but actually, if, if um, I think to take the, the, uh, the dialogue to the next stage in terms of, um, you know, what we're all getting out of this, I think, I mean, Daniel's already done a lot of work preparing people. If we were planning another one, a little bit further and say, right, I'm actually going to draft up what I'm saying, then I go to work with this person from the other discipline, bit, just to exchange text and see where we can where we can build um, the process between us. And I think if you know, if it, it sounds as though it then might become homogenised, but I think in practice it doesn't. I think if people understand the idea is to get something that will come from Huntford, um, it, it, it means that the audience ends up with a very nice sort of pair of papers rather than them being sort of two separate papers, albeit they might be very nice in their own right. So if, and th I mean, the other big question is, do people think two days is better than one? Would we have time to do, would we be able to work with a two-day model, or would it just make it impossible for us to commit that much time? Mm. Uh, I mean, maybe not to respond on that today, but maybe we should just think about that and get to a view about it.
Well, yeah, it's a very very concern. Other, uh, otherwise, you might end up having a schizophrenic uh, patients here. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on, on the two-day thing, you see, I think we've got a number of people who've been able to come for the day, and most people mm. actually stay for most of the day. If you have to stay overnight, then it's easier if you live in Oxford. If you have to stay overnight for the second day, it just might start. Uh, it'd be great to be able to have the two days. But again, I've had experience of organising a number of um, this workshop type event um, over two days. And when you when you can make it work, and, and it does tend to mean that you know you've got to have somewhere where people can work and stay, and then still be there the next morning, kind of thing, to make it feasible. Mm -hmm. When you can make it work, you do get a big supercharging of the interdisciplinarity of it through the fact that you know you've been there for dinner together, you've been breaks together, and then you're working together the next day. And it might you know just sort of believe that, but at the same time recognizing that it's a much bigger investment for you in terms of time. Yeah. I think. I think one thing that would be really interesting if you did do a two-day thing would be to have um, a sort of public uh, engagement thing on the first day mm -hmm. and then try and reflect so, yeah. on what came up mm -hmm. for the next That's day. Or vice versa. Get something to... <laughs> but if you have a public, big public lecture on such topics, do you actually attract more than the usual number of fruitcakes? I think you would. I mean, it's going to be as today. I think essentially from your experience, well, all of us, in, especially if we do history of medicine, would be usually uh, the problem. Um, from, from my experience um, of doing philosophy psychiatry things, which you would think would attract fruit cakes it's not a big problem. Yeah. But I don't know, what, what do others think? I mean, is, is it a problem that would. I, mean, I think would. Yes, I mean, I've had, I don't know how many responses, so it is something which attracts mm. everyone. If, you know, I don't know, I get people from the mathematics department or. I think you're concerned that people might come and try and hijack the meeting. Well, we, we, we know that, yeah. um, yes, question times can get, yes. can get hijacked. Yes. Uh, it's a big, big audience. I mean, I, I, I um, well, just to give you one example, I, I was asked to do something last week, um, <coughs> which was for a group called the Community of Communities. And actually, they are based in the Royal College, but it's a, it's a therapeutic communities. And this is this therapeutic communities take people who particularly are very financially constrained uh, systems now, do have the most severe, complex, long-term problems. They tend to include people that you would sort of see as being a bit bad. Mm -hmm. no, so it is um, it is more of that extreme end. And I turned up for this thing thinking it was going to be mainly clinicians and or therapists in the broad sense, um, and discovered that the audience was, over half the audience were actually members of the therapeutic communities, so people who were there as patients rather than as providers of services. And um, I then, my second horror was that I found the first half of the morning um, was um, these people presenting their own stories, one of whom was actually sang a version of Downtown. I thought, how the hell am I going to follow this? You know? <laughs> and for this group, here's me, you know, sort of theoretician sort of thing. Um, but 
what actually happened was that they were incredibly warm and supportive to me, and the whole morning worked really well. And that included the question time, you know, when I could expect to, you know, at the very least got my leg pulled for being a bit of an academic kind of thing. Yeah. But actually, the, 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 the experience was extremely positive. So I would, I would predict that whilst there is a risk of somebody just coming and being off the wall and making it, making it very difficult, I think the, the actual experience would be much enriched. The other bit of anecdote on this is very early days of the Lost Psychiatry Movement, we had a, actually a series of workshops a bit like this um, that were paid for with um, Colin Blakewell, who then had some money through Donald Pugh Centre, do you remember that? Neuros it was an early neuroscience um, uh, centre. And um, it was philosophers of mind, people like Martin Davis and John Campbell, so very much at the extreme theory end, um, with neuroscientists and um, and um, patients and carers. And the one thing that Martin and John both say to me at that whole series of meetings was that it was very interesting, but the thing they really remember was people who have had or had schizophrenia describing their experiences. That was what lit them up and really got them going. And so, yes, there are risks, but I think that it's it's something we should think about trying to work out. And I would, I would suspect we get a very much enriching uh, input to yeah. this program yeah. through people who were able to speak from that experience. Yeah. Now, my category of fruitcake doesn't, doesn't wasn't <laughs> <laughs> intended to apply to, <laughs> no, to the <laughs> patients, <laughs> <laughs> to the sort that we've always all yeah. encountered. Yeah. 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 Who does yeah. ask yeah. off the wall questions? Yeah. 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 Maybe clinically sane. Yes. I think we've got a new category. I would not want us to lose the opportunity to have the kinds of exchanges we've had today. I would mm -hmm. have it all in a public setting where we are not getting the kinds of, of uh, uh, interchanges that we have mm. now. So that's going to be a trick for you to organize. <laughs> can, I, can I make one further suggestion to think about, which is that if, if we, now we've all got to know each other, if we're going to take this process forward from one form or another to another meeting, um, but um, I, I, I do think exchanging papers is, is a good idea, certainly abstract. The other thing we might want to do is, um, again, particularly if we're, people are going to work in pairs, would be to narrow the um, focus of the material down a bit, so that we say, right, actually, I think these examples or this particular story, um, these are things we might want to focus on, so that we've, we've had tremendous breadth today, but we get a bit more of a focus and a bit more of a depth dimension. I think this would be particularly important if we extend it to anthropologists and people who bring different perspectives to it. And then some of the core material actually could be circulated in advance if, if only the case the case studies that people could start thinking about so they'd have some sort of ability they could process it a bit before we come to the actual meeting. Might I ask is the general consensus to have a couple of I mean topics such as possession and creativity and Suicide was another one. Treatment, how you approach uh, the handling, of, and then within that, enlarge the constituencies so that you get them approached by from the legal aspects or from uh, that of uh, management and delivery within healthcare and so on, rather than have the topics one of management and mm -hmm. delivery of care, but mm -hmm. centering on particular. Well, that would be my best. Mm -hmm. 
very sensitive there, focusing on the topic. Focusing on the topic, but yeah. having these different perspectives mm -hmm. uh, it addressing it. So, in fact, you could have maybe you know three different perspectives yeah. uh, addressing the same on on the same on the same case history yeah. 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 as well. Yeah. 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 mad poets or mm -hmm. not mad poets. Anyway, and examples of possession. Mm -hmm. And the clinicians present. An example, which is Sorin's comment on, and so on. And then someone presenting from the standpoint of the, what would have to be modern, presumably, the treatment, the whole arrangement of the management of that particular condition, all that sort of thing. And then the legality of it, legal issues, something like that. And it's very good. I think I think we should uh, give a vote of thanks to the two major organizers. Yeah. 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 thanks to, to the organizers. <laughs> <laughs> we should lose sight of the fact that, as I said right at the beginning of the day, um, Daniel, you've done a marvelous job here, both in terms, obviously, of the academic quality of the meeting, but also in the very warm way in which the quarters are together. And I think that's provided the foundation for this. It's very interesting.